Al Jazeera podcast. Hundreds of people will be killed by this time tomorrow. Then hundreds more and then thousands. That's Riyad Mansour, the Palestinian envoy to the UN at the UN Security Council on Friday. The council had just voted on a ceasefire in the war on Gaza. And as Mansour spoke, the U.S. Deputy U.N. Ambassador, Robert Wood, was looking down at his phone. Like scrolling through his phone. It just sort of shows how this has almost become routine. The ceasefire failed to pass, and the U.S. was the only veto. We still cannot comprehend why the resolution's authors declined to include language condemning Hamas's horrific terrorist attack on Israel on October 7. Friday's vote was one of the latest attempts from the United Nations to broker a lasting ceasefire. So how is that stalemate playing out in the halls of the UN? And what does that mean for the organization's credibility? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is Gabriel Elizondo, and I am a New York-based correspondent for Al Jazeera English. So, Gabriel, diplomats at the UN have pulled out some rarely seen tools in their toolbox to broker a truce in this war on Gaza. And that includes their latest resolution, something called 377A. The United Nations General Assembly has voted overwhelmingly for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. The result of the vote is as follows. 153 in favor. Can you walk me through it? Is there a chance that this could do anything to end the war? Well, I would love to give you an answer saying yes. (laughs) I would love to be able to go into a long discussion about all the ways that this General Assembly resolution could end the suffering, end the war, But really, this is probably the easiest question you'll ask me because it's a one-word answer. The answer is no. Unfortunately, the UN General Assembly resolutions are not legally binding. And so they can be ignored without any sort of repercussions. But it still means that the General Assembly resolutions are important because they're sort of like a referendum on the world opinion on something. So in that way, they're politically important, they're symbolically important, but in terms of having any sort of legal binding, the simple answer is no. The resolution in of itself will not end the war. Wow. This vote on Tuesday at the General Assembly comes days after yet another vote, that one on Friday at the UN Security Council. It was called together thanks to something called Article 99, which hadn't been used in more than 30 years. The invoking of Article 99 by the UN Secretary General is a really dramatic move. It's sort of like the firing off of an SOS flare. Yet... The resolution failed, thanks to a U.S. vote. So, first of all, it's hard for me not to be cynical 
when hearing the coverage of Article 99. It's been described as this rarely used tool by the Secretary General to put something on the agenda. That doesn't sound very powerful. Why is it? There are a lot of misperceptions about the United Nations and about the power that the Secretary General has. You know, I look at my Twitter feed, the comments that I get after I post things about certain votes within the Security Council, and overwhelmingly the comments are, in the last few weeks, the United Nations is useless. The United Nations, if they can't stop this war, what are they good for? And I want to be clear that the Secretary General is the world's most powerful single diplomat. That is true. But he in of himself does not have the power to simply stop a war. That power, if you will, is left to the UN Security Council. And it's the Security Council resolutions that are legally binding. So when he invoked Article 99, that is the most powerful tool in his toolbox to basically say, we are on the cusp of a humanitarian disaster that could be out of control. Please, Security Council, put all of your resources, all of your attention into this one issue. I wrote to the Security Council invoking Article 99 because we are at the breaking point. There is a high risk of the total collapse of the humanitarian support system in Gaza, which would have devastating consequences. So almost pleading with the Security Council to put their attention to this issue. And then we got the vote, which ended up in failure because of the U.S. veto. What was the mood in the hallways since that article was invoked? Urgency. You got a sense that diplomats were just frustrated, especially on the Security Council, because the Security Council, these 15 countries, five, which have veto power and are permanent members, the US, Russia, China, the UK, and France, they had already gone through five different Security Council resolutions to try to stop this war, stop the bloodshed, and they all failed for one way, shape, or form. And so there was a lot of frustration, I would say, by diplomats in the UN, some anger even. Mm -hmm. What about when the U.S. vetoed the resolution? Was there tension? What Was it business as usual? No, not business as usual, because this is not business as usual right now for the U.N. for multiple reasons. There was a sense of exasperation, a sense that one country, the United States, could veto a resolution that 13 of the 15 members of the Security Council voted for, what the majority, overwhelming majority of the Security Council wanted to have happen. So does that lead to tensions? I mean, you know, diplomats have to pass each other in the hallways of the UN. What is there? Are they cordial? Are they, is, does it feel icy? Can you give me a little bit of detail on what that actually feels like to, to walk those halls right now? Normally, before October 7th, there's certainly disagreements between diplomats, but these men and women are diplomats for a reason, because they're very good at um, having differences, but being able to be cordial. So a lot of times you'll see 
in in the past uh, disagreements in speeches in the United Nations, but then in the hallways, people will be very cordial, socializing or what have you, having coffee together. This is different. You really do see with this conflict a sense that in the hallways there is real tension. You had the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations calling for the secretary general to resign. The UN is failing, and you, Mr. Secretary General, have lost all morality and impartiality. Because when you say those terrible words that these heinous attacks did not happen in a vacuum, you are tolerating terrorism. And I think that the Secretary General must resign. I mean, this is unprecedented, unheard of. You see in the Palestinian ambassador's face, real pain. You see in other diplomats, the same thing, that they know that they are there for to do one job on the Security Council, and that is to uphold peace and security in the world, and they simply cannot do it. You know, I tell some people, I say, squint off into the horizon in that island that you see far, far away, and you see two people only on that island. Those two people are the U.S. and Israel when it comes to this conflict. For the most part, the rest of the world sees this conflict in a very different way. And in terms of like what you're seeing personally from diplomats, I mean, I don't want to make too much out of this moment, but after the veto vote, the Palestinian ambassador was invited to speak and he gave a very powerful speech. And the deputy U.S. ambassador, Robert Wood is his name, he was looking down at his cell phone. I don't know what was going through his mind at that time, but it just sort of shows this sense that the meeting will be over, everyone will walk out, they'll get in their vehicles and their drivers will take them away, and what will change on the ground in Gaza. As of now, or the two months into this conflict, absolutely nothing despite what the UN has been trying to do. So right now, more than 18,000 people have been killed in Gaza, and it's just really staggering just to even say that number. The United Nations Agency for Palestinian Refugees, known as UNRWA, says that number includes 133 UN workers many of whom have been killed with their families. How is that reverberating where you are in New York? Has it affected the U.N. negotiations? You know, most conflicts around the world for the U.N., the conflicts aren't necessarily personal in nature, if you will. This one is. More than 130 U.N. staff have been killed in Gaza that really hangs in the air at the UN. The UN flag was lowered to half-mast outside its headquarters in New York and its other offices. The UN says it's the highest number of staff killed in such a short time since the organization was founded after World War II. Now, is that infringing upon the negotiations in the Security Council? Maybe. I mean, there's certainly urgency because this is an organization that's really living this. And it's not, only, it's not only that the UN employees 
in Gaza are being killed. That's bad enough. But what you also hear is that they're being targeted. Amid Israel's ground offensive, there are fresh airstrikes that have hit a United Nations-run school in northern Gaza at a refugee camp. Hundreds of people are believed to be taking shelter there, fleeing Israeli attacks. A UN school in Beit Hanun has been destroyed while Israeli soldiers cheered. The UN humanitarians will always say, taking shelter under the UN flag is usually the last safe place in a conflict. People that are displaced know that they can go to a UN school, they can go to a UN shelter, and they will be safe. In this conflict, that's not the case. They're being killed while taking shelter under a UN flag. That's something that is going to live with the UN for many, many years to come. After the break, how is the war in Gaza? changing the UN itself. Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI. And I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Your class starts January 8th. Necessary Tomorrows an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. There had been calls to reform the UN and the Security Council, especially since before this war began. Even Secretary General Antonio Guterres has said that the Security Council reflects the world order in 1945, when many UN member countries were still under colonial domination. The world has changed. Our institutions have not. What is the point of those calls for reform? And in as non-diplomatic language as you can give me, what is it that they actually want? What would we be reforming? There's been a lot of talk about reform of the Security Council. It's been going on for a long time. And in fact, just last year, there was a president that came to the UN and he talked about reform of the Security Council and said that it should be of high importance and even urged the five permanent members to refrain from overuse of the veto. That president was Joe Biden. Members of the UN Security Council including the United States, should consistently uphold and defend the UN Charter and refrain, refrain from the use of the veto, except in rare, extraordinary situations, to ensure that the Council remains credible and effective. And here we are, a year later, and it's the United States that uses its veto power to block a ceasefire in Gaza. Much of the world looks at the Security Council as not representative of the new world order or the new centers of power around the world, if you will, specifically the five permanent members that have veto power. That was the way it was set up after World War II, and that's the way it is in the UN Charter. 
it gave these five permanent members of the Security Council, the U.S., Russia, China, the U.K., and France, power to veto any Security Council resolution. They're saying, how is it that only these five have veto power over peace and security around the world? And so there has been a call for reform of the Security Council, specifically with this veto power issue. But is it going to be easy? No. If it was easy, it would have been done already. Because in order to change that, you need two-thirds of the General Assembly to vote for it. But then also, and this is key, all five permanent members have to agree to it. So they'd have to agree to their potential displacement from the Security Council. Exactly. Exactly. Or lose power, lose some influence with their with their veto power. You add five more countries to have veto power, that means 10 countries with veto power. So that dilutes the power of the five. You know, Gabriel, in that same speech that Guterres gave about the world having changed and the institutions having not, he went on to say, It is reform or rupture. Do you think that we'll see those calls grow as this stalemate continues? I think so. I mean, you've seen calls for for change within the Security Council for a while now. Um, You started to see it even during uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine because Russia used a lot of its veto power during that uh, time in the last couple of years. But I do think this is probably a turning point for the UN, this conflict. And I do think that after the dust settles, as they say, I do think you probably will see a real concerted effort to figure out what the UN can do to change, to try to be more effective in the future. What do people at the UN think needs to happen to put an end to the war? I mean, when people ask me, you know, about the UN, they'll say, I have a question about the UN. And I always say, what part of the UN? Are you talking about the Security Council, which is certainly the most powerful body in the UN? Are you talking about the General Assembly? Because that's certainly uh, a very powerful body of the UN as well. Are you talking about the Secretary General? Or are you talking about UN humanitarians around the world? So what do you mean by the UN? So when people say the UN is can't stop the war in Gaza, I have to say, well, the UN is 193 countries. So get 193 relatives in a room and see if they'll <laughs> all agree on something, right? Probably not. Yeah. So Gabriel, finally, what have these past couple months been like for you covering the UN and this very powerful body, as you put it, seeing it powerless to stop the increasing death toll in Gaza? I mean, it's frustrating too. You know, you see people being killed and then you go into this big, tall, beautiful building on the east side of New York City and you listen to diplomats and you watch feeds of them speaking and 
you hear them talking about trying to figure out how to bring about peace and then you walk out at the end of the day thinking will tomorrow be the same is the war just going to go on and did anything that took place in this UN headquarters in New York have a difference and that's the take this episode was produced by Nagin Oliayi and Faranisa Campana with Zaina Bazar, Sonia Bagat David Enders, Sari Al-Khalili, Chloe K. Lee, Miranda Lynn, Ashish Malhotra, Khalid Sultan, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer. And Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.